Our Father in heaven, we, we gather in your presence as your people. And we sit humbly at your feet with arms lifted high to worship and honor you, for you are worthy of our praise. With hands open to receive whatever it is that you choose to give to us because you are love. Your ways are past, your thoughts are past our thoughts. We can't begin to imagine that we understand everything that you say and do. So we submit to you and completely surrender ourselves to you because we trust you. We know you are good. We know you are great. And what we want most of all is to bring you glory and honor through the lives that you've given us. We confess our inability to do that so often. We are earthbound, and so for that, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to help us, to help us be more heavenly in our thinking and in our actions and in our words and in our love. And this, too, comes from you. For you are at work in us, with us, to do your good pleasure. And so we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that we get to belong to your people. And as we talk about that today, we, we ask for your inspiration. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would open our hearts and our minds and, and touch us uh, through your word in Ephesians as we go in new and profound ways that we might more deeply understand who we are and what you have called us to do and be. Our hearts go out to the Bredner family, and while we don't know the circumstances of Rona's surgery, we, we do know, Lord, that you are with them, and you are there just as you are here. And we are there in spirit as we lift them up to you and, and join with them, Lord, in the heavenlies by, by asking God for your grace and favor to be extended upon Rona and the family. We pray for her healing. We pray for her restoration. We pray for courage for her family and faith. And that they would sense your presence in a mighty and powerful way and they would have peace. We pray for those that will be attending her, the medical professionals, and ask God that you would add to their great skill your grace and that you would be working in and through this situation for your glory. The Apostle Paul said, whether we live or whether we die, Lord, it is all in your hands. It is for your glory. We pray for this family that's going through a valley right now and ask for your goodness to rain down upon them and us. In the name of Jesus, amen. I, you may know that I grew up in Regina, Saskatchewan, and uh, so there's one thing that you know about, if you're from Saskatchewan, you bleed green, right? So uh, you are always and, uh, and ever always a Saskatchewan Rough Rider fan. So that's, that just comes with the territory, you know that. So, um, but what you may not know about me is that since I was a little kid, I've also been a Montreal Canadiens fan. 
And uh, I realized, yeah, now that's, that's, it's a scary and dangerous thing to say in a crowd like this, I know that. But you're also, you're, you're, you're a people that are filled with love and grace. And so, so uh, I'm, in, I'm in good company. But anyways, I am. I, I have always been a Saskatchewan Rough Riders fan and of going way back to the days with the great Jean Beliveau and Yvonne Cornway and Jacques Laperriere and all these greats, you know, from the early 70s and, and, uh, and that kind of stuff when I fell in love with the team and with the game. So when I was living in Montreal, you can imagine my excitement when I had the opportunity to visit the Forum, which is this one of the greatest, you know, kind of wonders of the world, this hockey shrine uh, that, uh, you know, you just cannot avoid. Um, but so to be able to go there and, and you know, the, if, you've, if you know anything about the Montreal Forum at all, the old forum and the dressing room, that was like the inner sanctum. That was the holy of holies for hockey was the dressing room in the Montreal Forum. And there's a reason for that, because in there, on the wall, were the pictures of some of the most iconic greats of hockey, going all the way back to the original six, these wonderful, amazing heroes of the hockey world. And above their pictures, right here in the dressing room, where every, every generation of the team would gather to get ready for their games, was the inscription, to you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. And it was an inspiration to teams that they were, they were to receive this legacy of greatness that had gone before, and they were to rise to the challenge to do that. Now, you might say, well, well they suck at it now, but um, <laughs> at least they are aspiring to it. And, uh, you know, we, we at least have our moments of greatness in Montreal, don't we? So that's as far as I'm going to go in the hockey analogy. But that idea of being... Uh, inheritors of a legacy of greatness is really what we're talking about. Look at the book of Ephesians and we look at what it is to be the people of God. And today, what I want to do is look at this idea of what it is to be a predestined people. A predestined people. It comes right to us out of Ephesians chapter 1. So here we go. It says this it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be a holy and blameless, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. Now, as we talk about this, I'm well aware that, you know, the doctrine of predestination that has been debated, you know, in the Christian world for centuries, and it's not my intention to get into the Calvinist-Arminian debate as to who has the right view on what it means to be predestined, because I think that we can share a common view that is perhaps even more applicable than that one. So I just want to begin by saying I'm well aware that there is much more to the story of salvation than what I'm going to be bringing about today, because I want, to be, I want to focus on one particular aspect of what it is to be a predestined people. He says that we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. 
Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I think for that, we have to go back all the way back to Genesis, to the foundation of the world, and realize that we're told in Genesis chapter 1, in the story of creation, that after God had made this wonderful earth and this glorious creation, he says to himself, let us make human beings in our image, male and female. Let us make them in our image and give them dominion over the world. This is the, the idea of the imago Dei, the image of God, that human beings are imprinted, created with the intention of being God's image bearers on earth. That we have always been more than just part of the physical, temporal creation. We are physical, we are temporal, absolutely. We are part of the creation for sure, but we are more than that because we're meant to have a relationship with the Creator that transcends all of that. And we were intended to be God's representatives on earth, God's stewards, God's people, that we would look after what He had made, enjoy it, improve it, beautify it, and he would be with us, and we would be with him, and it would be this glorious, marvelous, wonderful creation that God had, had made, and it would just be this reciprocating love and enjoyment with God enjoying us and us enjoying God. And that was God's design before he ever made anything, before he ever made the world. But once he made the world, his intention was that he would populate it with people who bore his image and who loved him and served him and honored him. So from the very beginning, God had predetermined that there would be a people on earth who walked in his image. Who walked in his image. But of course, we all know the story. That went south. That went south with Adam and Eve. That went south with human sin. Because once sin entered the equation, once humanity had said, no, we don't want that kind of relationship, we want to be our own bosses. We want to choose for ourselves what is right and wrong. We want to be like God, and we fell into the delusion and the deception of the devil. Everything went south. We know that. And so we also know that the story then, from then, is really about what God's going to do about it. How is God going to redeem it? How is God going to fix the problem of the humanity and the creation that he made? And this is where we enter into what it means today to be a predestined people. You see, we know from Scripture that beginning with Abram, beginning with Abram, God chose a person. Out of, out of the people that were there, out of all the people that were on earth that were no longer bearing his image, that were no longer walking with him, God came to Abram and he chose Abram and he said, let's enter into a covenant. You will be my person. I will be your God. I will bless you. And out of you, I will begin this work of restoration. And we know the story. We know that from Abram it went on through the patriarchs and Isaac and Jacob with God choosing Isaac and then God choosing Jacob and God choosing the nation of Israel. Our whole Old Testament is the story of the nation of Israel. God's chosen people. The rise and fall, the highs and lows of what it was for hundreds and hundreds of years for that nation, that chosen people to be God's predestined people. We know that 
they also fell short and failed in their mission. And so God laid it all upon his servant, Jesus. And Jesus then, as the servant of God, became the Israel of God so that he could fulfill the purpose of being the second Adam and allowing humanity now to have a redeemer, a messiah, a savior. And then Jesus chose 12. And Jesus chose 12 and said, now I'm choosing you and now you will go and and you will be my disciples and you will go out and through you we will raise up a people. And that, of course, gives way to the church. To the age of the church for 2,000 years now where people have been part of this predestined people of God by being part of the body of Christ. And I want us to understand that to be part of the church of God, to be part of the church of Jesus Christ, is to be part of this predestined people, the plan of which began all the way back before the foundation of the world. Rodney Clapp, in his book, A Peculiar People, says this. He says, Christian faith, far from being a matter solely between the individual and God, amounts to being grafted into a new people. The church understands itself as a new and unique culture. The church is at once a community and a history. A history still unfolding and developing, embodying and passing along the story that provides symbols through which its people gain their identity and their way of seeing the world. That's a wonderful description of the church, of the people of God, the predestined people of God, that by being part of this people, We gain an identity, and we gain a sense of who we are, and again, we gain a sense of our purpose by understanding what God has called us and placed us within and what we have become a part of. So it's not just a matter that God is saving you for himself and saving me for himself so that we can all one day be together with him in heaven forever. His plan is so much greater than that, so much deeper than that. He saves us and makes us part of his people for a reason, for a purpose. To bear his image, to bring him glory, to be his covenant people on earth. That's what it is to be a predestined people. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be a predestined people? Well, the one thing that I think we absolutely must understand about this is that we do not earn it. We do nothing to earn it. Brian next week is going to talk about what it means to be chosen and adopted by God. We don't earn it. We're given it. We're called into it. We're birthed into it through the new birth. But we do have to own it. We do have to own it. We don't earn it, but we do have to own it. So I want to take a break. I want to give you a couple of minutes to think about what does it mean to own your identity as the people of God. And then I'll come back and we'll talk some more about it. So how do we own what it is to be the people of God? For the rest of our time together, I'm going to suggest four ways that we can do that. The first is to connect with God. And I want to talk a little bit about what I mean by that. 
In the book of Exodus, when we have the instructions for the tabernacle, as I've mentioned the last couple of weeks, this incredible description of, of all of the instruments that were to be there, all of which were to help the Israelites to gather in God's presence, to know his presence, and to celebrate his presence. After God has given them all of this instruction, six, seven chapters worth of instruction of everything from the Ark of the Covenant to the table to the lampstands to the basins for washing, all of these kinds of things, all highly symbolic, all pointing to what it is to be in the presence of God as his people. In chapter 31, he gives them the Sabbaths. The Sabbaths. So first he gives them a place to meet. And then he gives them times at which they are to meet. And those help the Israelites to understand their identity, the place and the time. When they could gather together as a people, as God's people, to worship him, to celebrate who he was, to learn. Now, they were always God's people. They were God's people 24-7, 365 not just when they were gathered. And we understand that about our identity too. We are always the people of God. We are always the church. We are the church dispersed and we are the church gathered. And when I talk about how we can own what it is to be the people of God, the thing I'm talking about is how do we use our time and our space when we gather as the people of God? Can we use it more wisely? Can we use it more effectively? And I believe that we can. I believe that we can. The word liturgy means the work of the people. The work of the people. And Aaron Naquist in his book, um, The Eternal Current, describes it wonderfully, I think, when he says this. He says the word, the word liturgy literally means the work of the people. It is the set of activities we do when we gather. Every church has a liturgy. The question is never, do we have a liturgy? But instead, how does our liturgy form our community? It's not about style. It's not about old instead of new, quiet instead of loud, or sad instead of happy. Liturgy is all about participating in the holistic work of the people of God and one another that forms us in Christ-likeness for the sake of the world. When we gather, we are participating in activities that are intended to form us into Christ-likeness for the sake of the world. We have a liturgy at Forsbrook. We do things. When we gather, we sing, we pray. You listen to someone speak. And these things are all intended to, to form us into Christ-likeness for the sake of the world. I love that picture. Well, we've decided that we, we can be a lot more intentional about our liturgy. There is so much more that we can do. We want to increase the tools in our toolbox to be able to use our time together well. And I want to just share with you a couple of the things that we're thinking about. One is how we use this physical space. We have 550 chairs in this room. And we are consistently about 300 to 330 people that gather here on a Sunday morning. We have a lot of empty chairs. And the result of that, a lot of us are sitting in isolation and we have a lot of space between us. My wife and I have a dining room table that has six chairs. It seats six people. We have a family of four. 
So when we get together to eat at our dining room table, you know what we do? We remove two chairs. We remove two chairs so that there's just four of us sitting around the table. We don't need the extra chairs. So one of the things that we are looking at how we can, how we can do this is we want to remove some chairs. We want to take out 100 chairs from this room so that we can be closer together as the family of God, as the people of God. Now, I pray we grow. I pray that God will add many, many more people. You know what we can do as that happens? We can add more chairs. When my son had a girlfriend and she would come over and have dinner with us, you know what we did? We added a fifth chair. We can always do that. We can always add more chairs, but we don't need 150 empty chairs in this room. I don't think it helps us draw together as the people of God. So we're looking at a couple of ways that we can do that. And I just wanted to let you know that we're thinking about that so that you don't show up one Sunday and find yourself shocked. <laughs> Howard, the chair of our elders board, when I told him this idea, he said, do it, do it, do it this week. Right? I said, yeah, no, let's not shock people. Let's tell them we're thinking about it first. And we're looking at different ways that we can do that. How would we use the space, the extra space? But why would we do that? Why would we want to do that? We would want to do that because we want our activities when we gather to help form us into Christ-likeness. So that when we gather to meet with God and celebrate his presence together, we leave better equipped to be the church out there. That's the purpose. That's what we want to try and achieve. So we want to learn how to use silence, how to use prayer, how to use scripture reading, how to use music, how to, how to break this up so that it's not just about one person talking for 30 minutes. That's not even the most effective way for people to learn. So there's a lot that we can do, and you'll notice some changes over the course of the next several weeks and months as we implement some of these things. But understand our heart and our goal. It's so that when we gather, we use our time well. And we use our space well. When we gather, I'll invite the ushers to come forward for communion. Every week, when we gather, we do, we do communion. If the ushers could come forward, that'd be great. And when I talk about liturgy, and I talk about the deeds that we do, the acts that we do, the actions that we do together that form us into Christ's likeness as a people, clearly communion is one of those acts which we do every week, and I love that about this church, that we center in on this most foundational, fundamental part of our faith, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's the one who makes it all possible beginning and end. And the fact that we would center in on that every single week is key. But when we do communion, it is meant to help remind us of who we are and why we are, not just what Jesus did for us, but our response to what he did for us. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says the cup of blessing that we bless, isn't that the cup of thanksgiving? Isn't that our communion with Christ? 
And the bread, that's our, that's our communion with Christ. And he says, because there is one loaf, we are one people. Now we, for reasons of sanitation and all that, we use the little cups and we use the little pieces of bread, and that's, that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. But remember that in the day it was instituted, when Jesus did it, he took one loaf. One loaf of bread. And this one loaf of bread represented his body. His body, his physical body that would be broken, but also his body eternal, you and me. Those who would become part of this body. Those who would become part of the people of God. Paul says there's one loaf, there's one body. And so as we take the bread today, what I'm going to encourage you to do is not do it in isolation, but look around you. Look at who else is here taking this bread with you today. Your fellow members of the body of Christ. And what brings them here is this bread. The same thing that brings you here. We are one body. We are one people. We are one church. So as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them and he said, take this, all of you. This is my body broken for you. Let's give thanks and then the ushers will serve the bread. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, what a privilege it is to be your people and to be here at this moment where we are sharing in the bread and the cup of communion, just like so many thousands and thousands and even millions of our brothers and sisters have before us and even are around the world. We are part of something so wonderful, so amazing, your people, your people at Forest Brook, your people around the world. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what it is to be your people. We thank you that it is your sacrifice that makes all of this possible. We love you, we worship you, we adore you. Would you bless this communion that we're doing? Would you bless this bread? And by it, would you strengthen us in who we are as your people? We remember you, we appreciate you, we love you, and we will live for you. And in your name we pray. Amen. What are some other ways that we own what it is to be the people of God? Um, we can belong to the body. We can belong to the body. When I was in seminary at Tyndale, I had a professor. We were doing the pastoral studies class, learning you know, what it was to be pastors and stuff like that. And one of the things that he said in our class that stuck with me was he said, if you're going to... If you're going to pastor a congregation, you have to join them. You have to join them. What he meant by that is you have to belong. You have to invest. As long as, as, long as someone is standing on the sidelines looking in, they'll never feel fully a part of things. We have quite an eclectic congregation, as you know. We have people that have come from other fellowships, other places, other churches, sometimes in groups. But have you ever really joined this community? Forestbrook Community Church. 
the one I talked about last week? Have we ever really joined? Have we ever really put our hearts into it and said, this is where God has planted me. This is my people. I am with them. I am theirs and they are mine. Because there's a whole different level of belonging when that happens. A couple of years ago, we revamped our membership course here at Forestbrook. And we started using a little book by Tom Rainer, who's a, a church uh, analyst in the United States, has written, written many, has written many books. And this one's called I Am a Church Member. It's just a little simple book, but it is profound in its impact. And what we did in the course is we didn't want to just you know, say to people, well, here's what it means to be a member at Forestbrook Community Church. What we wanted to do is say, if you're going to be part of a church and you're going to be a member anywhere, what does that mean? And this is a book that looks at what the Bible teaches us about belonging, about joining, about becoming part of the people of God in a local congregation. And what we said to people is we said, by the end of this course, you know, we would love for you to choose to be here and feel that God's planted you here, but if that doesn't happen, that's okay. As long as wherever you go, you belong, you join. And you become this kind of a member. Be all in. Be invested. Get off the sidelines and get in the middle. That's, that's what it means. He has a quote here in this, little, in this little book. I think it was on the screen behind me because I saw you looking up. It says, we who are church members need to look in a mirror. One of the things that I found is, you know, we have a number of people who've taken the course over the last couple of years who took it so that they could serve in leadership positions because we have a requirement that to serve in a leadership position, you do have to be a member of our congregation. And so people will be serving, you know, in different places and say, oh, I guess I better become a member. And so they'll take the course. And one of the comments that I've had numerous times is people said, I had no idea everybody should take this course. Because it's about what kind of a member will you be? We who are church members need to look in a mirror. I'm suggesting that congregations in North America are weak because many of us church members have lost the biblical understanding of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. See, I'm not the only one saying this. The Holy Spirit is saying this to the church across North America. We join churches expecting others to serve us, to feed us, to care for us. God did not give us local churches to become country clubs where membership means we have privileges and perks. He placed us in local churches to serve, to care for others, to pray for leaders, to teach, to give, and in some cases to die for the sake of the gospel. You see, belonging to the people of God is a call to service, not a call to privilege. We're going to talk about that in a second. But I'm pleased to announce that last spring when we did our new course for, or for membership course called Believe and Belong, out of that course we had five individuals choose to become members of our congregation, and I want to introduce them to you today. Two of them are not here because they're sick, but they are with us in spirit. Um, so the first is Samantha McInnes Villalon, who serves in our children's ministry downstairs, and unfortunately she's one of those who's sick. Uh, Kathleen Egan. Kathleen, are you here? There's Kathleen right there. Just hold on, wait till they're all up. Uh, Krista Smith is going to be near Kathleen. I'm sure that's Krista Smith 
right there. And George Needles is right here, and his wife Susan was also a member, but unfortunately she is not well. So welcome to the three of you, and the two in absentia. Let me just pray for you and, and uh, ask God's blessing on you as you take this, this important step. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you work in the lives of people and you are the one who brings conviction and commitment. Holy Spirit, you have led these five individuals to see uh, that you have called them to a different level of belonging. And they have chosen to follow you and they have chosen to take that step and become members of the body of Christ here at Forest Brook. Lord, we are grateful and we receive them with gratitude. We thank you. We ask you to fill them with the Holy Spirit. We pray that the fruit of the Holy Spirit would abound in their lives. We pray that the gifts that you give them, Holy Spirit, for service for your kingdom would be just blown into, fanned into flame and just really come alive. That through them, we will be able to do good work for your kingdom. We thank you so much, knowing that this is all from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So thank you. And maybe for some of us who are members, it wouldn't be a bad idea to go and take a course like that again, just to take a refresher and say, what does it mean for me to belong to the people of God here at Forestbrook? Another way that we own what it is to be the people of God is to serve. I said a second ago that that. Uh, the call to follow Jesus is a call to service. The, the call to be, belong to the people of God is not a call to privilege. Oh, there's blessing and there is privilege. We are God's favored people, absolutely. We know what it is to love God and to be loved by him. So there is absolutely blessing, but it is first and foremost a call to service. It is a call to bear his name, to be his image bearers, in the world around us. I love this picture in, in Ephesians chapter 4 which says that the whole body is built up as each member does its part. Ephesians 4, 16. Remember I said how Ephesians was a blueprint of the church? All of this stuff comes from the book of Ephesians. That the, the body of Christ is built up as every member does its part. That's the biblical ideal. That's the biblical concept. That's one of the things that I loved about Forest Brook that drew me to Forest Brook um, 16 years ago. Was it was a church that believed that every member was called to serve. Every member was called to ministry. That every member was uniquely gifted by God. That God had given them something and a place to serve and a means to serve and had called them to service. And that the role of the church was to help steward that and encourage that. And yeah, that can be messy. When you have 300 people with great ideas and passions for following Jesus, yeah, it's messy. Hard to organize a group like that. But what a beautiful way to be the people of God. What a beautiful way. We've always believed that. And we've always taught that. In the coming year, we want to drill down on that and we want to get much more focused on how we as a church help you, help one another to know what God's calling on our life is, how God has uniquely gifted us by the Holy Spirit, where he's called us to serve and then to encourage one another to do that. Not all those gifts are going to be used in here, by the way. Many of those gifts are going to be applied out there. Service in the world, service where it's needed beyond these walls. 
One of the things that Rachel introduced to us a number of years ago uh, was Church Community Builder, which is a software program which enables us to manage uh, systems and processes and people in our church uh, using uh, an online software program, CCB. Many of you are aware of it. Everybody should be on it in terms of having a file and be able to use it. One of the things that we are going to be adding to our CCB is a feature which allows you to do an online spiritual gifts inventory, which then matches it with needs in the church and gives you some idea of how God's gifted you and where you might be able to use those gifts in his service through our church. In January, after Christmas, we're going to be spending an extended period of time teaching and looking at that passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4 of what it is to be a gifted and called people. And we will encourage everyone in our congregation at that time to do that spiritual gifts inventory. Because we believe that this is what it is to be the people of God. Every one of us is called to serve. Every one of us is gifted to serve. And every one of us can serve. Greg Ogden, in his book, The New Reformation, says this, The measurement of success is the ability to identify, train, support, and deploy an increasing number of people who will take responsibility for the spiritual welfare of God's people or to make a significant impact through their witness to Christ in word and deed. An equipper's job is to build in people a belief that God has called them to ministry and to help them function in accordance with their identified call and giftedness. That's what the role of the church is, is to equip you and I for the work that God has called us to do. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 says. We've always said that, we've always believed that, we haven't always been very good at it. But now we're going to get very focused on it. We're going to drill down on it and make it a primary purpose of what we are trying to do in helping God's people to be the people of God. Last spring when we had um, our small group leadership <clears throat> meeting and we had a guest speaker um, come and talk to us, a guy by the name of Paul Lamb, um, he talked about you know, how we can spend so many years in the church and kind of be stuck going nowhere. We can be on a spiritual plateau. And he said, you know, we can learn all kinds of good things about the Bible. Uh, we, can, we can just acquire all kinds of knowledge and information. We can have our, our group of friends and circles. But, but is that what spiritual maturity looks like? How do you measure spiritual maturity? Do you measure it by knowledge gained or time served? And he said, no. I suggest that if, if you are a disciple-making church, then you measure maturity by the level of responsibility people take for themselves and others for the sake of the kingdom. And that's a beautiful picture. That's the measure that we want. Because that's what an equipping church does. It teaches you as the people of God to take responsibility for yourselves and others for the sake of the kingdom. So we want to get very focused on that. Why are we doing all this? Why... Why put so much attention into this? Because we are the people of God. I want to summarize these last three weeks just by sharing something that comes out of the Old Testament. We're not the Old Testament people of God. We're not the Old Covenant people of God. We are the New Covenant people of God. But we're clearly told in the New Testament that all of their stories are given to us as examples so we'll learn from them. So we won't repeat their mistakes but instead we'll learn from them 
and we'll learn to be the people of God in our day. Here's what God says to the people of God in the Old Testament. I am the Lord and will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as my own people and will be your God and I will bring you to the land I swore to give to Abraham. I will put my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves. We are redeemed. We are saved. We are brought out of a life of sin and bondage and a life of death. We are brought into the people of God, into relationship with God so that we can have a relationship with him and we can be his people and show the world who he is so that he can walk among us. That's who we are. That's what we are. That's why we gather. That's why we disperse. That's why we come back week after week after week. Because we are the people of God. His people for our generation. I'm aware of the time. Should I do the sending now? I want to close then by just adding the fourth reason, and that is to share, to share. We're not a people just for ourselves. We are a people that exists for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And we are to represent him and bring him to the world. When the disciples were sent out in Matthew chapter 10, they were told to go out and do amazing things in the power of the Holy Spirit. They were told to, to heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons and cleanse the leopards. And as they went, proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near. So the good works that they were doing, the good things that they were doing in the world, the light that they were shining was tied to their identity as the people of God, as harbingers of the kingdom of God, which had now come and was coming so that people could become part of it. People could be invited in. When the Montreal Canadiens built a new stadium in Montreal, the Bell Centre, they carved out of the wall in the forum, in the dressing room in the forum, that panel which had the pictures of those hockey greats and that inscription, to you from failing hands we throw the torch, be yours to hold it high. And they took that and they put it in the new dressing room of the Montreal Canadiens in the Bell Centre so that the legacy would continue and the spirit of the legacy would continue for future teams. And it's in that spirit that I share with you what it says in Hebrews chapter 12 as a way of sending us off today. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily besets us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. May you leave here today strengthened as the people of God, renewed in your sense of who you are and the purpose that you have 
in the world. And by His great name and might, may you shine and draw all people to Him. Amen.